Some cookbooks are for instruction. Some offer deep insight into the cuisine of a particular place and time, and some look good on a shelf. Some take their form around key moments in a broader conversation and become an artifact of that time. All aboard as we time travel back to 1886 for the classic woman suffrage cookbook. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. It's absolutely stunning today. There's a couple of clouds in the sky, but man, it is just beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. The snow is starting to melt. Yay! Yay! Spring. (laughs) I think we can say spring is springing here. Awesome. It's definitely starting to spring over here as well. And you know, this is the time of year where Nehru's is actually coming up. As of recording, it is still ahead of us. It's taking place on Monday. But it's just nice to feel the change in the air, the change in the temperature, the change in the light, although I'm incredibly (laughs) tired from that. But spring's coming and it's just good to be alive another year, you know? It's just a great time of year. Agreed. So we've been talking obviously a lot lately about cookbooks. And Mm -hmm. last time we got together, we talked about the origins and the genesis of the 1886 The Woman's Suffrage Cookbook. This is the one edited by Hattie Burr, and it was published as a fundraiser for the movement, especially in 1886. This is about halfway through the seven-decade stretch of women's suffrage in the United States, and invited contributions from women and men, all interested in supporting the cause of women's suffrage. Now, I wasn't familiar at all with this cookbook until we started talking about women, food, and suffrage. And as we discussed in the last episode, The Women's Suffrage Cookbook, beyond being a mechanism to raise funds for its cause, is now largely celebrated as an important historic artifact of early American feminism. The compilation of the book itself represents so many things. It's a declarative act by which women could visibly contribute to a cause of their choosing, a tangible record of support, and a hopeful note in a slow conversation about how a group of like-minded people wanted to engage in the world around them. And while it's a later consequence of scholarship, after all, hindsight is 2020, I especially like that a cookbook, this cookbook, is part of a sea change revealing the private work of a household to a more public view. And still, all that intellectual posturing did not prepare me for what I would find (laughs) when I read the recipes. They were nearly incomprehensible to me as a modern cook. What the heck is a quick oven? What is a cast iron gem pan? What exactly is Indian meal and why do so many of the recipes use it? And dear God, why, why would you boil cabbage for three hours? That one still gives me the chills. I'm a good cook, but an even better researcher. So I knew I could figure out these questions. But in the meantime, I'm experiencing this incredible gulf between the people who made this food 
probably to the point of pride, because why would you contribute a recipe for food that you hate unless you're like trying to fool your enemies and myself? And it caught my head spinning about exactly how much our lives in the kitchen have changed in the past 137 years. Mm. So to orient myself, I went to my family tree and I figured out who in my lineage would have been of age to contribute to a book like this. And to my surprise, it was not my grandmother's generation, my great grandmother's generation, but my great great grandmother's, specifically Bertha Ada Peters, who was 21, Emma Huckle, who was 43, and Angel Bruce de Gur Signy, that's a French name, who was 31. And I have a broken branch on my family tree, so I do have a fourth great great grandmother, but unfortunately, I don't know her name. And even though there's still this chasm between my ways and means in the kitchen and theirs, I began to understand the limitations that they faced, the frustration and the hope that they felt about their ability to affect change, and how proud or sorrowful they would be to see how radically things are different for me. I still thought the recipes looked really hard. And and why? (laughs) Because I have choices and more importantly, conveniences. Mm. So in episode 38, we talked about how innovations in kitchen technologies changed how we cooked and stored food in our homes. Today, we take our fancy stoves, microwaves, and refrigerators for granted, but for home cooks in 1886, many were still cooking on stoves heated by wood or coal or storing foodstuffs in root cellars and in iceboxes. So a quick oven, in today's terms, that roughly correlates to about 425 degrees Fahrenheit, Stuff is going to cook quickly when your temperatures are that high. A slow oven might be more like 325 degrees. So now I'm starting to orient myself to what I understand versus what they understood. The cookware of then is not the aluminum stuff with nonstick coating that permeates our kitchens today. Not saying I have those things in my kitchen, but most of us do or did. In episode 23, we enthused about cast iron workhorses that easily withstand and distribute direct heat. So cast iron gem pans are small muffin-sized pans that turn out gems of cornbread, muffins, or cupcakes. Speaking of cornbread, Indian meal is an archaic term for cornmeal. In the late 19th century, corn was abundant, affordable, versatile, and nutritious. Its name also signified a broad awareness of Native American cuisine. As Europeans moved westward from 1840 to 1860, this is the Manifest Destiny movement, they encountered and adapted Native American cooking techniques and ingredients. Now, a lot of this fell away as innovations in wheat farming and flour production gave rise to wheat flour as a pantry staple. So if you're interested, check out As We Eat episode 20 for more about flour and the grain empires of the American Midwest. As for cabbage, thinking about three-hour cabbage gives me the horrors, but I did turn to a historic cookery community for insight and received these suggestions as to why that cooking time was recommended. What we think of as boiling has changed with temperature control cooktops. With an inconsistent temperature, a vessel might offer a range of anywhere between a slow soft boil to a rapid boil depending on your fuel source. So three hours would probably guarantee your food was going to be cooked. Vegetables were likely grown at home or locally, and especially from seeds that were not as altered as they are today to produce more tender, sweet produce. They would literally need to cook longer to counteract toughness, woodiness, or bitterness. 
Vegetables in particular were also cooked longer due to perception that cooking to mush made them healthier (laughs) and easier to eat in that they were easier to digest. There was a lot of concern about digestion, and we're going to come back to that. One of the funniest and possibly true even reasons I heard was that dental hygiene or lack thereof meant that diners might have needed softer foods to chew. The craze or the taste for crisp tender like we have today didn't really exist then. Might have been hard to actually get some of that food down. I love the fact that you turned to this historic society to ask this question, because I think we often look at recipes and go, ew, nasty, gross. Why would you? But we're looking at it from the lens of, like you said, our modern kitchens and our modern recipes and our understanding of how recipes should be written. And I think that it's important to understand that people didn't have the dental care that we have now. And that's a super valid point to make when you're talking about these types of cooking methods and instructions. Yeah. And we are going to come back to it a little bit more in a little later, but this idea of digestion as well as a major concern, that also being the focus of the nutrition of food, not vitamins and minerals and trans fats and how much cholesterol that we are focused on today. But getting back to the question of like, how do I feel when I eat this? And what does it mean for my body to burble after I eat cabbage? The concept of the humors, we've talked about that before. The idea that different foods make you feel more bilious. And so you want to stay away from those. That concept of nutrition was different then than it is now as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because these are not, there, there are very few recipes in this cookbook that yield what we would consider a modern food pyramid approved nutritious diet. It's it's just different. And that would have been a different philosophy, a different theory of nutrition. It just goes to show, again, how much has changed in the 137 years since this book was made available. Right. So with all these thoughts bubbling in my head, I did pick out a recipe to try. One that I felt like I hopefully could accomplish it. And that was Water Lily Eggs by Alice Stone Blackwell. The recipe itself is really brief and written in a narrative style, so I'm just going to share it. Quote, boil two eggs 20 minutes, separate whites from yolks, put on a plate one teaspoonful of flour, a piece of butter the size of a hickory nut, and pepper and salt to taste. On this plate, cut up the whites of the eggs into small cubes the size of dice, mixing with flour, salt, etc. Have four tablespoonfuls of milk boiling in a saucepan. Put the whites in and let them cook slowly while you make two slices of toast. Spread whites when flour is thoroughly cooked over toast. Break the eggs up slightly and salt them and force through fine strainer over the whites on top of the toast. Holes in strainer should not be larger than pinheads. Serve hot at once. A very pretty dish and convenient in case of unexpected company as bread and eggs are almost always in the house. End quote. My first impressions on reading the recipe, why would you boil eggs for 20 minutes? But then I remembered that boiling does not necessarily mean hard boiling, where it's hot and fast, right? Right. I also brought my eggs to room temperature because I thought that perhaps in the 1880s, eggs would not necessarily be washed before use or until use, Mm -hmm. and therefore they could be kept out rather than refrigerated. 
after 20 minutes of cooking, my eggs peeled beautifully. And to my surprise, the yolks were bright yellow and not that overcooked green gray that just looks really unappealing. That's really interesting because I really would have expected them to be the green gray. I really was too. And again, that 20 minutes, I'm thinking, you know, why would you hurt your food like this? <laughs> what did that egg ever do to you? I, I turned it down. I didn't go for a hard boil. I went for like a medium boil thinking, I mean, I have temperature control, so it's going to hit that temperature and then maintain it. Not unlike a wood fired stove. That was the best I could do to like approximate. Like in many right. ways, this recipe is impossible to accomplish by modern standards because unless you're invested in a replica kitchen, you can't recreate those conditions. But I did try. Right. So I had to guess at the approximate size of a hickory nut. And I'm totally <laughs> charmed by the idea that at some point in history, a hickory nut size was a common enough knowledge that it could be used as a standard for measurement. Oh, yeah, you know. Oh, yeah, no, I totally know what you're talking about. I also had to guess at the directions for small cubes the size of dice. First, because it's antithetical to cube something that's ovoid. <laughs> and also because my reference for dice is the sort you play games with, and those are not small. I also had a hard time conceptualizing the sort of sauce that would generate from milk, flour, salt, pepper, and eggs. But that's because I'm personally unaccustomed to milk gravies or gravies at all. I really need to learn how to make mother sauces because they're delightful and they can really spark up a meal. I, for some reason, oh. we don't. Eat a lot I of am such a sauce girl. If I can put a sauce on something, I will put a sauce on it. <laughs> and even if I shouldn't, I will. <laughs> when I go out to eat, it's the sauce that is the is why I order a dish. Oh, fig sauce. Yes. I'm so why I don't do that at home, I don't know. I, it just we just didn't eat a whole lot of gravies growing up. Yeah. Now I confess I totally agonized over the toast. First, to be truly accurate, I thought I should make bread because these ladies would not have encountered commercial loaves of sliced bread until 1928 when a baker named Otto Rowetter perfected the invention of the machine that could slice bread automatically. Also, the first successful electric toaster wasn't invented until Scottish scientist Alan McMasters did so in 1893. But this modern woman has work that requires her to be out of her home most hours of every day. So I capitulated to convenience and just imagined that I was giving my great great grandmothers this amazing demonstration of my <laughs> fancy electric toaster using my commercially bought sliced bread. Sorry for folks who are all about accuracy and authenticity, but needs must. And <laughs> I just this is what I did. So the results, and I have photos that we're going to, obviously we're going to put into our show notes. It was a fancy version of egg salad. The yolk garnish is really pretty, and the contrast of bright yellow on white does resemble a water lily if you squint and kind of imagine it really hard. And perhaps my seasoning of salt and pepper was off, but I found the result a little bit bland. So I think I'd add some chopped pickle relish in the future, and that is actually pretty accurate to the time. So I feel pretty good about that. I chose the water lily egg recipe because I felt confident that I could actually accomplish it. But we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about its contributor, Alice Stone Blackwell. When I saw that you picked this recipe out, I was super, super, super excited because 
Alice Stone Blackwell was a really prominent woman in this whole movement, and she has some really fascinating background into the women's rights movement. I mean, she was literally indoctrinated into it from birth, essentially. Both of her parents were leaders in the women's rights movements. They established the American Women's Suffrage Association. Her mother is said to have introduced Susan B. Anthony to the women's rights movement. She was also, her mother was also the first woman to earn a college degree in Massachusetts. She also was the first woman to keep her maiden name after marriage. Nice. So Lucy like Stone, yep. yep. Alice's aunt, Elizabeth Blackwell, was the first female physician. I mean, she was surrounded by the women's rights movement. She did rebel at one point in her life, like most of us teenagers do, but she did come back. She was the editor at Women's Journal, which her parents also established, which was a women's magazine focusing on women's rights. In addition to women's rights, she was really a humanitarian. She went to Armenia and helped the Armenian refugees. She sadly lost her sight later in Mm. life, but she lived until she was 92. So she actually was able to see the results from all of the work that was put into this movement. What I love about her too, what I love about her story is that she didn't stop. You know, Mm -hmm. we did, they did see ratification of the amendment granting women the right to vote. And she still went on during her advocacy, as you said, you know, Armenian genocide. She also was an early advocate for other marginalized groups like African-Americans and the LGBTQ plus community at a time, too. This is well before Stonewall and the civil rights movement. She just cared for her fellow people and she wanted them to live their best lives. In 93, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York in recognition of her contributions and uh, and also not exactly for her contribution to this cookbook. She did a lot, but this is the one that she gave to the Women's Suffrage Cookbook. And I do thank her for it because it's nice to have a new tool in my toolkit. So yeah. knowing all of that about Alice, how did this recipe present itself to you? Did it feel like something that was really something that was accurate to her and her personality. What I know is that Alice never married, never had children. And so one of the things that I started to feel after I made it was that, forgive me, but this is spinster food. This is the (laughs) bowl of cereal you eat before you go to bed in lieu of making maybe a full (laughs) dinner. I know that the recipe has that very clear commentary about easy to make for unexpected company because, you know, usually you have all this on hand. That kind of confused me because this wouldn't have passed for guest food in my family. The food that you make for guests is quite a bit more elaborate and polished than this. So I don't know. I have no way of knowing if her guests would have been delighted to eat water lily eggs or if it was she was so important that it was her presence and her company that was being sought out and Mm. just gummed your way through literally, maybe literally gumming your way through the dish. Um, Hard to say, but I do have to say, I do feel like I could add this to my repertoire a little bit. She, there were little elements like the pressing the yolk through the strainer, you know, created this like little confetti of egg yolk that was really pretty. And I could imagine using that on other dishes Mm -hmm. or that technique in another way. It was something that 
I really hadn't thought of before. I don't know. Is this a dish where, you know, have your guests sit in the parlor and then you run to the kitchen and get the eggs to boil for 20 minutes? And or is this something that I because I don't know, did she have a home where people were welcome into the kitchen and they sat at the kitchen table and they, you know, had mm. tea while things were cooking or was it more formal and polished? I could imagine both scenarios. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah. going to have to try the water lily eggs. I'm very excited about it. It was neat. I do appreciate meeting her through this recipe. I can imagine her being very much in her head a lot to the point mm. where food was sort of not just a thing that you did from nutrition because she's clearly thinking about other people when she wrote that recipe. There's that thought about that it's a shareable thing. Right. But I could also imagine it easily being a case of this is easy. This lets us focus on talking and connecting and relating rather than some fancy meal where you need a lot of etiquette and a lot of forks. So, yeah, so many forks. I mean, this you can pick up and eat with your hands, although it's probably better suited for a knife and fork, really. Um, yeah, so those are my thoughts as I was experiencing this particular recipe. But there's a lot more going on in this book. And mm. in addition to the recipes for food, also come recipes and tips for household management. And this is, I think, a further message to the reader that suffrage for women was not mutually exclusive with a desire for a happy, healthy home life. Right. They wanted to do the things that they were doing. They just wanted to have the right to vote to go along with it. And that wasn't immediately going to be this case where they're out in the streets and in the bars and behaving like men. And I'm saying that <laughs> very sarcastically, right? That it was, they could have their cake and eat it too. And ironically, there are tons of recipes for cakes in here. So a lot of those tips were practical, but I got a real chuckle from this sentiment expressed by Frances Willard about plain living and high thinking. Mm. Quote, I have formed a settled conviction that the world is fed too much. Pastries, cakes, hot bread, rich gravies, pickles, pepper sauces, salads, tea and coffee are discarded from my bill of fare. And I firmly believe that they will be from the recipes of the 20th century. Entire wheat flour bread, vegetables, fruit, fish with a little meat and milk as the chief drink will distill in the alembic of the digestive organs into pure, rich, fearless blood, electric but steady nerves, and brains that can think God's thoughts after him as they have never yet been thought. This is my recipe, plain living and high thinking, and this is my warning, with high living you will get exceedingly plain thinking. Yours for stomach writes, Francis Willard. End quote. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And here again, we're talking about the whole digestion, how that affects exactly right your thinking, exactly. even which it really does. But yeah. yeah. Are you surprised to learn that Frances Willard was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union from 1879 until her death in 1898? Based on that recipe, that's exactly what I would have suspected. I would easily argue that in the 20th. 21st century that there's still a lot of pastries, cakes, coffee, tea, and whatnot running around. But, you know, you got to start somewhere. I guess she was, had this dream for the future. Thank you for that thought, Francis. What I love is that there was an inclusion in here, right, of mm -hmm. that recipe. I mean, oh, yeah. there's so many women are represented in this cookbook Absolutely. from different factions. Certainly a lot of temperance and abolitionists, but yeah. 
And as you say, there are other submissions that speak really eloquently to devotion to the cause for which this book came together. In the miscellaneous section, there comes this thought from Julia Ward Howe. Whatever other uncertainties we may recognize in values and in markets, it will always pay for women who have money enough to have leisure to interest themselves in bettering the condition of their sex. It has become honorable today for women, gentle or simple, to earn money. This is as it should be, but for us to deduce therefrom the supposition that women should engage in work only as they are paid for it would be a lamentable mistake. We must have money to live and ought to have enough to live well and comfortably, but while life has some supreme interests, money is not one of them. We must do our devoir, which means duty, whether it brings us in wages or not. And I thought that was an interesting inclusion. Clearly, she saw that as an opportunity to talk about higher minded things. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing to do with food at all. I did appreciate how she really notably talked about that there was more than one class of woman that they mm. were addressing. I may not necessarily, in my modern way, love the idea of gentle or simple. She had a point. And yeah. I did like her call to do our devoir or duty, whether we benefit materially from it or not. Right. So something I think a lot of us could stand to remember as we look around the world around us and decide what we like and what we don't like. That's my relationship and experience with the Women's Suffrage Cookbook, the 1886 classic. Thanks for sharing that. That was Thank fun. You. I love that yeah. we are able to talk about these recipes, actually make them, and then talk about what our experience was and how we relate to them and how possibly each of the contributors and authors have related to those recipes. Yeah. As I said, I felt understanding who were the like that generation of women, mm. figuring out where they were in relationship to me right. and just in time and chronology that was really useful. I don't mm -hmm. know much about my greats or my great greats or anyone else beyond that, really. I don't have recipes that have been passed down. Historic cookery has not been a thing in my life. So having this actually felt like I could connect with them for a minute. I could imagine them at the stove making water lily eggs or anything else, baking even though it was hot outside or, you know, waking up in the morning knowing that you were going to need to kind of do these five 10, 15 things and not knowing that conveniences were coming that were going to make that easier for you. Right. Yeah. It was just a really fascinating. It helped me orient a lot to my family and then just my history as a woman. If you would like to learn more about some of the myriad of ways that American foodways have changed in the late 19th century, please check out episode 38, Fire and Ice, Two Modern Kitchen Technologies That Changed Our Kitchens and Diets. Episode 23, Dutch Ovens, Wedding Gifts, Symbols of Independence and Members of the Family. And episode 20, Grain Empires, The Wheat Belt, American Innovation and a Kitchen Confidant. And we've touched lightly on the concept of technique and how mastering techniques can make your food easier to prepare and taste better. In the next episode, we'll be chilling with the grand dam of Technique herself, Julia Child. It's going to be a fun one. It's going to be a fun one. And Lay's cooking from this one, so you're really going to want to. I am. I'm super excited gonna, about this. You're going to want to tune into this one for sure. <laughs> for more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. 
And so you don't miss an episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you could just spend a few minutes away from those water lily eggs and rate and review the podcast, we would be so appreciative. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify, and it really helps us to grow this community and bring some more great information to people who want to learn more about food history and food lore. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we'd be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. Subscribers have early access to our episodes as well as exclusive content and more. We're sure you'll find a subscription that's right for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a little bit of research, a dash of humor, and a whole lot of passion. Ba ba da da ba 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 da ba ba da ba 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 ba.